Grosso from Vancouver to win it for Canada! Canada came! Canada conquered! Canada gold! Buchanan with the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by their biggest superstar! A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades! Finally arrives! You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo. Alexander Gangay Ruzic and your host, Ben Steiner. Hey there, folks, and welcome back into the Northern Football Podcast. It's episode 140 of Northern Football. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Those are greatly appreciated. And make sure to follow us on social media as well. Ben Steiner alongside Peter Galindo and Alex Gangay once again. A bit of a quieter week in Canadian soccer, but it's gearing up to be a big week with Canada versus Jamaica. That's right, and next week as well, which is probably going to be the key game of the two, considering you're going away, and usually that means just get it done, get out of there unscathed, and then come home and try to get the business done. So we will see what the next few days are. Big few days for the women's program, it must be said. This could be generation-defining, I guess, right? Even era-defining. Obviously, the gold medal was huge, but uh, you know, with the consistent evolution of the the women's game that we saw at the world cup canada uh, and they you know they they struggle and didn't look up to standards this is a chance to to also leave that behind so it's a it's a big game in on multiple fronts you could add and i guess we'll get right into it uh some csa news dropped right before the show the board of directors selected global consulting firm corn ferry to head up the search for a new general secretary a candidate is expected to be named by the end of the year the CSA will hire a permanent Canadian men's national team coach once the general secretary is appointed. So that, you would assume, kind of comes January, February, March, sort of the latest. Ideally, for me, it would be, and this is probably a pipe dream at this point, December before Christmas. Shortly after the Nations League window ends, you potentially can conjure up some money to do even just a small camp poutine in January so the new coach can have the ability to evaluate all the players, maybe play against Iceland's B team or Denmark's C team, some somebody who's available. Assuming they can get the job done in the Nations League quarterfinals, you're going to have a Nations League semifinal and potentially final in March to play, so that'll be massive. And then, provided they get the job done in November as well, Copa America in the summer. So it's it's a massive few months here, and you would hope that that is where the timeline lines up. But the fact that there is a timeline, I think, is positive for two reasons. First of all, Mauro Biello has a bit of peace of mind in terms of, okay, this is how long I'm probably going to be in for. He knows he's going to be in for October, probably November. That is much more seamless when it comes to planning. That is much more seamless when it comes to just divvying up certain duties to different staff members um and then on the second front it also gives the federation a bit of time whether that's two three four months to get the right hires in place yes hiring an outside firm likely costs money but if it leads to the right candidate getting hired and then subsequently the right coach getting hired then that's really all that matters in the end yeah, and I think, I mean, the, the timeline, it, it makes sense, at least in terms of the BLO side of things, because, I mean, for an interim head coach, if a new head coach was to be brought in, uh, that would, you know, they would have one game against Japan, and then it would be right into the fire with the quarterfinal. So I suppose on that regard, the fact that BLO is familiar with the group, he has worked, obviously, under John Herdman for, uh, you know, a while. So I think that will also help in that regard. Of course, um, 
you know, you'd, you'd want some clarity of, uh, on that situation by the end of the year, but it does make sense. Cause of course, if you hire a guy now, say if the, if there were September friendlies then you could at least get that runway to find your feet and then go from there. But, um, with the, the, the scope of game that's ahead, Biello's familiarity can be an asset. And I mean, in terms of the uh, outside firm, <laughs> the, you know, it, as long as it ends up with the, uh, the right hire, cause sometimes with those firms, um, you know, it, it's more the optics of it, like, oh, outside firm, oh, you know, it's it's a fancy designation to to use. But we'll we'll see what the, the outcome of the search ends up being, uh, because the general secretary hire will be a crucial one, especially with all that they'll have on their plate to, to navigate heading into, uh, you know, into the next few years. And Corn Ferry, of course, is a American firm based in Los Angeles. And based on my little bit of research, they don't have much experience in in hiring sporting professor, professionals. So I do hope that there is some soccer minds behind this hire. It's not just somebody who comes in at the, you know, the right price point. There's gotta be somebody at Canada Soccer who's guiding this. Um, I imagine there is. And I imagine that's probably DeVos, but there has to be some sort of guidance from a sporting front because it doesn't seem like a consulting firm that's not a sport consulting firm necessarily has that experience to make that call on such a high position. Oh, of course, yeah. But I, I do think that th- there is also some value to be had with someone who is just an expert at finding good candidates for certain positions. And then soccer people on the board, whether that's DeVos, whether that's whoever the case, can sort of help fill in the blanks in that way. It, it's not the worst thing. Ideally, would you rather have a sports consulting firm lead the charge? Yes, but in this case... It, it's not like it's necessarily a bad thing either. Well, it is a very business heavy role they're looking to fill with the secretary one. Uh, you know, if it's for, uh, you know, if, if it was for president or something of that, like maybe, um, but at the end of the day, as we saw under past secretaries, it is a very important role on the business side. So of course, um, you want the soccer and business to go together. Cause as we've seen, that hasn't always been the case, but, uh, um, I mean, in terms of, but also given Canada soccer, at least the last few years, the, the soccer has also kind of lapped the business it's felt at times. So if they can get the business and the, you know, the executive side sorted out as well, I mean, I, I guess that would also help explain why they've gone for, you know, more of a firm that, that that's, you know, related to that area. What's the worst way this could go? The worst way this could go for me is if the process bleeds into closer to the March window. That to me would be the worst way to go because then if you're still trying to find a permanent coach and a general secretary leading into a March window, you're at this point close to two years removed from when the labor dispute first publicly started. It it just wouldn't be a good look at all, even just for PR reasons, right? Like that really would be for me at least the worst case scenario. I mean, outside of, you know, maybe not getting the right hires, obviously, but that goes without saying. And lastly, in terms of notes from the CSA, Paolo Senrad was named Chief of Communications and their Content Officer, and he's been very positive in the job for over the last few months yeah, as well. Really good guy. Um, a nice transition yeah. from from what was there before. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And he comes from experience with DAZN and, and Team Canada on the Olympic side. Uh, CFL as well. A, a lot of experience, so I think yeah. that's probably a, a good hire from Canada Soccer. And also a really nice guy too. Like I had a lot of conversations with him at the Gold Cup, and he's someone who... I think understands the importance of getting more front-facing time out of the players, out of the coaches, whatever figure it needs to be. 
And he was also crucial to the CFL's digital marketing brand, and he'll help build that out too, you would imagine. So he, he really is the perfect guy all around because I did have conversations with Paolo a couple times at the Gold Cup about how he wanted to try to maximize getting out in the public domain more. And Lord knows Canada soccer has failed in doing that over the last 20, 30 years. A lot of missed opportunities there. And as we know, one of the crucial ways of growing the game in this country is by being out there, getting as much exposure as you can. Paolo could be someone who could help turn that around. I do think I'd maybe turn to his, you know, Team Canada experience a little bit more than the CFL, which has a pretty regularly downturn in terms of annual viewers. I guess a bit of an upturn this year in, in terms of but coverage and annual social viewers, media but has been off the charts good true, the true, last few years. True. So like, yes, obviously the TV number, but he doesn't really have much of a say in that. The social media side is certainly something that could grow from that. We see there's a separate WNT account now. There's a separate Canada Soccer PR account. There's just the current Canada Soccer English and French pages. Maybe you get an MNT account, a youth national teams account, similar to what the US does, just to kind of split up all those teams, give themselves their own brands. And even if it's just one or two people managing those social channels, that could be a good way to help build the brand. I don't actually like the idea of splitting up the accounts. It was something that the American team started to do around sort of 2014, it seemed, and it was just before the Women's World Cup in 2015 that the women got mm -hmm. their own account. I kind of prefer keeping it all within one, you know, U.S. soccer, Canada soccer account, because that I feel in a way sort of emphasizes the, the like, I mean, I, I don't want to praise a, a U.S. soccer marketing slogan, but one Why nation, one, American, one nation, know. one team in, okay. in that realm. Um, like the, the goal of the, the U-17 team is not just to develop players to go to the, the pro game. It's to develop players to, you know, go to your senior men's national team and then go win a World Cup. That's the goal. So and same thing on the women's side. And so why not have everything sort of under one roof? Yeah, I mean, I see it, but at the same time, it does give you a little more freedom to be able to post different content on those accounts. Like sometimes those training uncut videos, whether it's the women or the men, they're kind of cool to see because you're kind of right in the thick of things. You get to see exactly unfiltered what a training session is like or what it's like at the team hotel, just things like that. Like I think it could actually help bring a more immersive experience for the fans watching. Um, for us, it's probably not great because then you have to follow like seven, eight different accounts. You got you got tons of notifications turned on. It probably won't make a difference for you anyway. <laughs> but you know, you got notifications flying in from all these different accounts. You gotta tap in to see which one specifically it is. Like little inconveniences like that aren't great, but bigger picture, I do think that it is a good idea personally. I'd say there's pros and cons because I mean the nice thing is of having everything all under one umbrella is that you know certain achievements as well can kind of get recognition because you kind of have the base group of followers um, like for example right now what I don't like about how it's split up is that the women's national team have their own account which is great but then that just meant that the main account ended up being a lot more um, you know like it, it just ends up taking away because it's like why have a can wnt and then a canada soccer one when the canada soccer one has all the followers if you're kind of taking away a, a bit of attention from the women's team so i'd say either you go all in and like like you mentioned you create a can mnt account you create a youth need teams account and then i guess you could always just use the main account as like you know amplification important messages etc or you just throw everything under one umbrella but i think certainly canada's mixed approach they have now where they 
kind of made that women's national team account after the Olympics, uh, I feel like they would have, it would have made sense for them to to kind of use that opportunity to split off and, and make a few of those accounts. But uh, now they have a chance to do that, especially with 2026, right? Like if you're going to yeah. use the 2021 gold medal as a chance to make the women's account, then, you know, there's a men's world cup coming in 2026, build the interest on an account now. Although I guess <laughs> the one thing is with the way, Twitter has has gone over the last few years. Who knows how uh, how much traction a new account on there would get? Just because uh, just how much of a mess the platform has become over the last six twelve months. It has become a mess, but I don't think it's become a mess that has completely killed it yet. If Musk starts charging even a nominal amount for people to use it, that's what what kills it. I think. Probably. But yeah. up to this point, like there's been certainly annoyances, and it's not as good as it was a year ago but it still works fine i mean it, it still does your basic things you still get the tweets you still kind of see replies zeets zeets <laughs> uh, yeah sorry that's right zeets forgot about that yeah enough about elon musk we'll get into our canada versus jamaica preview now canada facing jamaica in a two-leg playoff in the Concacaf olympic playoff friday in kingston jamaica Return leg next Tuesday at BMO Field in Toronto. Jade Revere and Deanne Rose will miss the camp due to injuries. Annabelle Chukwu joins for both matches against Jamaica. And just thoughts on those those roster adjustments because losing Revere again is is a big impact for this game team. Yeah, at least when it comes to Deanne Rose, you have the depth to cope with it, whether that's through Chloe Lacasse, whoever happens to start up front there you can at least fill it in with a couple of possible replacements. Jade Riviere, though, is crucial to how the team plays. And stylistically, things might change, for example, if you put a Gabby Carl at right back instead. Because maybe instead of having a center mid-back three with Quinn dropping into the middle of the center backs, essentially splitting the center backs, you could then have Carl forming a fullback back three. Quinn pushes a little bit further forward. And then you have the ability to have not only Ashley Lawrence continue to push up and down as much as she can, but then maybe the right winger has a bit more creative freedom to cut inside, go into the box more without needing to worry too much about tracking back because Quinn can help cover. You've got Gabby Carl staying back who can partially help cover the, the right flank as well. Things like that could change it. Um, it's not the worst thing either because at least Jamaica offensively they're maybe not going to challenge you too much at least based on what we saw at the world cup um it, it's more so how it maybe changes the attack and how they set up in that way if anything say of the two the bigger absence is probably deanne rose just because of course jade riviere um i think you know when fully healthy she has certainly a big role to play in this setup but also as we've seen jade rose stepped up a lot while you know riviere was out injured and Rose was missed, I felt, at the World Cup with her injury because I think at fullback, where if she sluts in, she'll create more of that tactical versatility of the possibility of back threes, et cetera. There's also Carl. I mean, you look at as well some of the options that were called up. I mean, you know, there's Sydney Collins, Bianca St. George, you know, Alicia Chapman, of course, you can't forget. Like, there's options there at fullback. Up front, as we saw, winger depth was kind of already an issue during the World Cup. Of course, it helps that Nichelle Prince is starting games again uh, for the Houston Dash, so she can step up. But uh, it feels like Canada's lack of wide options already hurt them at the World Cup. So uh, it also, you know, giving Chloe Lacasse the bigger role, she's 
you know, it's felt like she's deserved for so long is another solution. Maybe, you know, you, you get a bit creative with, with some of the options up front. Maybe it's, you know, you go for the two striker setup, but I, I do think of the, the two absences, certainly Rose's, Deanne Rose's absence as a winger is going to be felt. But uh, hey, Olivia Smith is also getting minutes in the professional game. Maybe we see a bit more of her as well, uh, maybe deeper in games. And Chuku coming into the team, I wouldn't imagine she plays much of a significant role other than uh, just bringing in another body to training sessions. Well, it's, it's safe for Chuku. It's a good opportunity just to kind of get embedded in uh, to the group. Of course, uh, you know, if I'm not mistaken, she'll be a part of the U20 World Cup team next year. Cause she's, you know, still extremely young. Um, so that's obviously going to be a, a plus for for her. And uh, it's a chance just to be around that senior environment. It's a promising winger. As we've seen, Canada's winger depth is, you know, the, it's something where long-term they want to get more options there. That's why we've seen Olivia Smith as well. It's why we've seen Amanda Allen last year also get a call. Um, and, and, you know, there's a few more even I'm, I'm missing uh, for, amongst young wingers. So it's a good chance for Chukwu. She's impressed uh, at the with the younger age group. So uh, I don't think we'll see or see the field much. These are two must-win games, but hopefully that experience can pay off and, Hopefully, maybe a lot. Maybe that might not see her over the next year play for the first team or next two years. But hopefully, it can help her down the line, getting that taste of that environment. What it, uh, you know, what you need to to succeed in it. And from Thomas Hewitt, how much of a rebound should we expect from the Canadian women's national team in the coming international break with these these two critical matches against Jamaica? I don't think the litmus test is going to be the first leg, as I kind of said off the top, because you're traveling away. It might be somewhat difficult circumstances, whether it's the the weather, just the state of the pitch, etc. You're probably happy to come out of there with a nil-nil or say like a narrow win, whatever the case is. As long as you're within striking distance of bringing it back home and getting a result, a positive result, that to me is all that matters. The real litmus test will be what do they look like in that home game. If they continue to struggle creating from open play, if they continue to bleed a lot in transition, which was a major problem against Australia, then the alarm bells are going to keep ringing for the team in terms of their attacking woes. Um, the bright side is, and I think Alex mentioned this last week, Jamaica is not... They're not the best defensively when you look at the underlying numbers. I know that at the World Cup, they were one of the stingier teams, but the amount of ch chances, quality chances they give up against Brazil, France, etc., where they do have the superior individual quality was quite high. Does it happen a third or fourth time against Canada? That's where you maybe hedge your bets a little bit. So if there was ever a game or a time for Canada to snap out of it, it would be now. Because even though Jamaica coming into this will be riding high, they got $25 million in additional funding from the JFF and the Bob Marley Foundation, which is massive for them because the players are going to get compensated. They got extra resources to prepare for the camp. They're clearly going all in for the Olympics, which is awesome to see. If not for the sake of CONCACAF, just the women's game in general, at least you can kind of come into that game knowing that, okay, if we're within striking distance here, we know that they do bleed chances eventually. Can we be clinical enough? Can we free up our best players, whether that's Grosso, Fleming, etc., to be able to unlock them and have them provide with us what they provide with their clubs? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's going to be a lot to, to look out for in that regard, especially the bounce back factor, how much of the World Cup was just, you know, timing, you know, was it tactical? 
was it just you know maybe like all of that stuff that's going to be huge as well these two games just the opportunity um you know playing the away game it's going to be something different i feel like it'll be a challenge that will almost benefit Canada because they're heading into that just needing you feel like if you go on the road you if you get a draw and then you come back home and get and go for the win there that's not you know that's never a bad formula in a two-legged uh series and you know I think going being able to play in that sort of environment could be beneficial um I think the the yeah the big test will definitely be at home just because how can they handle the pressure of a sold out crowd as well they haven't had that opportunity but also that opportunity to be fueled by the 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 home crowd because you know it is something worth noting that this women's national team hasn't really had that chance of you know having that home crowd behind them they've had to be the 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 aggressors the away team so often over the last few years even at this world cup you draw the host australia you had to kind of suffer that feeling of, of going up against an australia team is just going after you at, at home so I, I i you know those factors will be interesting to see if it helps lift the group because i mean as the it's it the, it the same team that was there at the world cup and as we saw or as we said, heading into it, it's a talented team when on their day and on paper, but can they really put it all together? Um, I, I certainly, it feels like the World Cup was, um, you know, a very much a low point. So it feels like their only way also as well to from here is to go is up. So we'll, we'll see if they're able to pull that off. And if you had to predict your score and your 11 for this one, where are you putting yourself? I think the worst score for Canada in this is actually 1-0, a 1-0 win in Jamaica. Because I feel like then you're coming back, you're not totally sure how to approach the the second leg, and then you're you're talking about like you know lose one nil against a, a stingy Jamaica team that, however they play in the first leg, is going to be similar to how they play in the second, and then you're talking extra time penalties, and you don't necessarily want to go there, especially with the depth of this Canadian team. I mean, I think them losing 1-0 would be worse than them winning 1-0. Because if, as we saw True. at the World Cup... I'll, I'll give you that. When they were playing from behind, outside of Ireland, when they were playing from behind, they tended to get quite frazzled. And then that's when the long ball started. That's when just any semblance of a tactical plan just went out the window. So that really would be the worst result, is if they lose the first leg by whatever score it is. At least if it's a draw... Then you're going in there all square. Anything can happen. You're approaching it maybe a little more proactively than you would the first leg. The second leg I'm talking about. Um, I'm going to go nil-nil. I, I think that they'll be happy with this, especially given the late injuries, given the maybe late tactical changes they will have to go through. Um, predicting 11, I don't think it'll deviate too much from what we saw at the World Cup. Really, the only question is going to be who starts up front and then who's going to be on the right side. I imagine it'll be Lacasse. I would favor probably Jade Rose of the two between her and Carl, but I wouldn't be shocked to see Carl in there, maybe to provide a bit of defensive solidity. But um, I think otherwise it's going to be pretty straightforward for both games. I don't think you're going to see very many changes from one leg to the next, barring injuries and whatnot. Yeah, I'd say the first leg kind of has a nil-nil written all over it. Just that's given Jamaica's past results, Canada, etc. In terms of the second leg... We'll see. I mean, Canada, what you'd have to imagine are the favorites there, especially if they can get a nil-nil first leg and avoid a Jamaica loss. Um, in terms of predicted 11, I'd probably say Sheridan in goal, Buchanan, Gill, um, Lawrence. I'd say Jade Rose slots in. I know she missed out on the World Cup, um, but I think she would have started a game at least at the World Cup if she was healthy. Um, so I see why not. She's been back. She's been playing for Harvard um, in midfield. I'd probably still lean, you know, Quinn, Grosso, Fleming, 
Uh, I know because uh, Quinn has been on the bench a bit lately for for a while, a while but they played this past weekend against Portland um, off the bench. Uh, and I, I mean, first, I hope it's six and two eights, but that's a whole other other tactical discussion that we'll see because <laughs> uh, we've seen the double pivot hasn't necessarily suited uh, Canada's trio. But nope. tactics aside, that's the trio I likely think we'll see. And then up front, that's a bit of an interesting question. I think we're probably going to see Nichelle Prince we're probably going to see um, Jordan Hoytema, and then it's going to come down to, okay, is it Adriana Leon? Is it Chloe Lacasse? Or do we see Eveline Vienslot and then Hoytema go out to the wing? I think of those three, I'd kind of like to see Lacasse, and you go a bit two wingers and a striker, and then with Hoytema, spell her with Vien, who you know made that move to Roma this summer and has been getting minutes, if not even start Vien outright. But what do I think is going to happen? I think Hoytema starts. So that's uh, kind of the 11 I'd see. And again, from leg to leg, maybe it's a few tweaks like, whichever winger didn't play slots in, you know, maybe one of the fullback swaps, but other than that, not much too chopping, uh, not too much chopping and changing. And Canada also won't play at the Pan Am games in women's soccer. They didn't send a team to the last Pan Am games. Uh, initial thoughts out of Mexico were that it had to do with the lack of funding from Canada soccer. Then communication came from Canada soccer that they are not sending a team because it's outside of an international window, which I say is somewhat understandable. The U.S. isn't sending a women's national team either. They're sending their U19 women's national team to compete in what is a senior competition on the women's side. On the men's side, like the Olympics, it is a youth competition. But the the women's teams in which Canada was qualified to compete against were Chile, the U.S., Jamaica, Costa Rica, Mexico, or now Mexico because they replaced Canada, Mm -hmm. Argentina, Paraguay, and Venezuela. Um, disappointing that Canada won't send anyone, especially considering that the potential was there to send a, a youth team. But I think somewhat understandable considering sort of the status of the Pan Am Games at this point. Yeah, and then if you're also dealing with funding issues, you know, ideally you would want to send a youth team out there, even if it's like an under twenty three team or whatever situation you find yourself youth in. Sports all stars. Youth sports all stars. That'd be kind of cool as well. Then yes, you would have liked to have seen it, but it's one of those where yeah, it sucks, but you kind of understand the reasoning behind it even if they don't outright say it's it's a funding thing it, it clearly kind of is because if the u.s is still sending a team they have the ability to still be able to send a team they have the pool of players they have the funds to do so canada has the pool of players the question we now have is do they have the funds to be able to do so and at this point you probably have to say they probably don't yeah, and I mean, for what it's worth, also, it's, uh, you know, Canada hasn't really participated in the Pan-American Games as well, like pretty much other than when they host in 2015, which, again, that's kind of a no-brainer. You're hosting and it's in your backyard. <laughs> if you didn't send a team, then that would be a, a bit of an issue. So it's something where it's like they haven't really been doing this for a while now. So it's something where, uh, you know, I guess that also speaks to the to to the state of the pool. I think that's also something worth noting. I think this it, it shows how why the pool needs to grow, why there needs to be a pro league. Because, for example, in this case, then you could, you know, send a couple, uh, you know, send players from your pro league, whereas now you look at the the availability of players. Most of the first team players are going to be in Europe or NWSL playoffs. Heck, okay, you look to the college players at that time of the year, it's, you know, it's starting to to push towards the end of the season in their playoffs. So they'll, they'll probably not be available. Um, And then all of a sudden you're, you're bringing in a bunch of U17s, U18s, uh, to go to a tournament where it will be older players. And look, I think that is valuable experience. And if you're able to pull that off, but at that point, um, the, you know, the, the 
you could argue the benefit because if you send a youth team out there and they go get blown out, it's kind of like, okay, why'd you send them all the way down there? What experience did that necessarily give them? That's an argument that can be had. So I'd say it's one where, of course, if possible, you'd love to send a team. Um, but based on the the circumstances, based on the fact that Canada and even the U.S. as well, uh, they haven't always really sent a team over the past few editions of the tournament. Uh, it's one of those where, um, of course, it's disappointing to see it happen with, with fu- funding being cited as a reason. But also it's kind of been something we've seen over the last few editions. And I guess a, a, a worrying trend continues in, in women's soccer in Canada as well. Sofia Ferreira, Canadian Portuguese right back with UBC has been called up to represent Portugal again. And then even just taking a look at some League One Ontario players, you look at the North Toronto Nitros and they had their goalkeeper, uh, Sierra Cotillarde called up to the senior national team of Portugal and Katarina Capiello called up to the U19 Italian national team. And all these players hold Canadian citizenship as well, but there's no teams for them to play on. Goes back to the long, long, long conversation we've had about youth national team camps. But speaking of which, we're going to get into that shortly. Before that, a question from W Soccer CA: Which women's players are you keeping an eye on in Europe this season? I would say Vienne in terms of just how she does in establishing herself with Roma. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, other players that recently made moves that I'm pretty intrigued by, Chandra Davidson to the Netherlands, where you get maybe a bit of a step up in overall quality in the league, and you have a bit of a reputable team you're playing for in Fortuna Sittard, at least at the women's level. Um, Samantha Chang also moving to Denmark from Portugal. That's probably a lateral move in terms of the size of club, but again, the competition overall might be slightly better, so we'll see how she does there. So Vien, Chang, and Davidson for me would be my my big three that I'd be pretty curious to see how they fare this season. Yeah, I mean, a few others. I mean, it's not someone that's, you know, of course, unknown, unheard of. Deanne Rose going to Leicester. That feels like a bit of an, you know, interesting move. She stays in the NWSL, sorry, the DWSL, and she did well at that level. Leicester needs goals. Um, So Deanne Rose could be leaned upon heavily, and that could help her kind of refine her feet after her injury. Um, so, you know, the Rose transfer, I mean, and then even across England as well, again, one where Lacasse, just how does she do in that, that step up and level where consistently, uh, you know, the, the, the level across each game in the, in the English league is going to be different to what she faced in Portugal. How is she going to handle that jump? Uh, how is she going to be able to contribute offensively? Uh, so I'd say a couple of wingers as well in those two, especially given Canada's need for, for wingers. Uh, I'd argue that. And of course, I mean, over in, in Portugal, Marias Minaladu made a bit of that jump from Cow to Benfica and she's doing well scoring goals. So how does she continue to adapt to that? And then uh, if she gets any looks for Canada, kind of seeing how, uh, how where she could project, if she can you know, push and add depth to that midfield position. And getting into our Canadian under-17 squad discussion, and there is an under-17 squad to discuss. Canada has been drawn with Spain, Mali, and Uzbekistan in Group B for the upcoming U-17 World Cup. The opening game is against Spain on November 10, and certainly some good opponents, but also opponents that Canada might be able to, to make their way through, considering that they also unveiled a squad to face Brazil in two friendlies in Sao Paulo on September 29 and October 1. And the group both the the roster group and the the group at the tournament uh have some some strong components to it 
They do, and I think the biggest takeaway for me is just how much different representation there is in this group this time compared to even the Under-17 Championships, the CONCACAF Championships, because not only do you have the European and MLS representation, you've got some representation from the CPL and TJ Tahit, of course, probably would have been pretty shocking if he didn't make it. And then Kevon Tavernier as well from Forge is also getting in there, and that's big because as we saw at the Under-20s, the guys with pro experience, namely the CPL guys, were by far the most impressive players in that group. Will that be the same case here where the guys with pro experience maybe have that slight edge on the players who maybe have the same level of talent and even are getting MLS next pro minutes, but not exactly are playing at the highest level yet compared to the other two? We'll soon find out. But also, you also have League One representation too, because Alan Sableguet is called up as well, the 16-year-old from Simcoe County Rovers. So this is why it's so important to have these multiple pathways in all these different leagues now, because we've long called for players to get the opportunities. We've long called for better scouting at the youth level when it comes to selecting national teams. You're starting to see that all come together now, which is amazing to see. And the fact that they're going to get the experience to play against a solid, solid Brazil team in two games as preparation for what's going to be a very difficult group, no doubt about it, but it's going to be a group that you can maybe get out of, depending on if you can get a result or two to lean your way. It's going to really test the mettle of a lot of these players, and I can't wait to see how they do against Brazil, and then provided most of this group stays together, and there are quite a few holdovers from that CONCACAF squad, how they'll fare at the World Cup as well. So all in all, I mean, I, I love the list. I love the fact that there's different representation. It's, it's quite mixed in that way, and they got a quality opponent to prepare for what's going to be a tough group at the World Cup. So all in all, a win-win. Yeah, I think it's... Uh... The, the pro point is especially a big one because I think it's, it might end up being quite pronounced, especially at the U17 level, because even the U20 level, um, th that there was that sort of, not disparity, but you could tell the difference that the guys who'd been playing professionally had over those maybe playing in academy systems and youth teams. feels like it's almost going to be more pronounced at the U17 level where there's more differences in physical maturity uh, and that side. So, yeah, it's going to be huge for guys like TJ Tahid and Kavon Tavernier, who are, you know, especially someone like Tavernier, the fact that maybe he hasn't played as much, but every week he's training and playing in that forge environment. You know, one of the best teams in the CPL, one of the deepest teams, just you know, being competitive and earning starts in that environment will will help. Um, so I think that will be huge because that sort of pro experience, I feel like, could really make a big difference at the U17 level. And heck, even there's a few others. Um, I mean, I know on the white cap sides, of course, over here on the West Coast, you're we're a bit more tuned in on that. But Jeevan Badwell has been getting regular starts, not just minutes anymore, but starts in MLS Next Pro. Uh, you know, so he's going up against, uh, you know, other pros playing in, in that league in midfield field so he already stood out uh, in the U17 qualifiers when he was you know playing more academy reps so that's a key uh, you know Liam McKenzie and, and uh, you know as well I think I want to say Kyler Vojovic as well the two uh, Whitecaps guys have been getting MLS next pro reps as well so that helps and uh, it's good to see that some of these guys with pro experience can can come in and and help a young team uh, like this and uh, I'm especially interested to see how the CPL guys fair because it feels like as we've seen this year there's been a more of a rush of 16 17 and 18 year old signings and as that becomes more of a trend uh, in future u17 rosters we could really see some good uh, cpl inclusion 
And getting into our MLS recap, the Vancouver Whitecaps defeated Toronto FC at BMO Field. Certainly a fun one to be at. CF Montreal drew nil-nil with the Chicago Fire. And Junior Hoylet signed with the Vancouver Whitecaps after they sold Sergio Cordova to Alanya Spor in Turkey. Certainly a, a positive move for the, the Whitecaps to bring in what is going to be a depth piece and continue building their sort of Canadian men's national team core, even if it's just till the end of the year, and get rid of Cordova's contract as well. Yeah, huge. And who is this club, by the way? Like Toronto FC? No, no. Vancouver. They're, they're Toronto FC. They're, they're doing what TFC wants to do. Well, I, I suppose. <laughs> um, but like they're making... I guess they're getting ahead of their mistakes, quote-unquote, early. I mean, Sergio Cordova did have a decent last six weeks or so, but overall, for the money they spent, the DP tag that came with it, you could say he probably didn't live up to the billing. They cut their losses. They sold him. They got out from under the contract in the DP spot. They replaced him with not only a quality player still in Junior Hoylet, but tons of experience, Canadian, doesn't cost them a DP spot or really any targeted allocation money. He fits in seamlessly into the system. And let me tell you, having been with him in a couple of camps, amazing locker room guy. Like, he's going to do wonders in that room. So, all in all, they've actually not only done a couple smart pieces of business, they're actually making signings that fit into the tactical philosophy. They're not waiting a year to replace a guy that they let go for free and were waiting for the contract to run out, etc. They're actually getting ahead of the problems early, and that's... Considering we have been privy to the Whitecaps now for, I can't believe I'm actually saying this, 12 years in MLS, they really haven't done this to their this point in their MLS existence. So it's still taking some getting used to, but it's, it's one of many reasons why I think there's a lot of optimism around the club again. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, just the overall business as well of moving on Cordova, um, you know, uh, after less than a year, of course, it helps that, uh, you know, Cordova was ready to move on and it facilitated that. It's still, um, you know, it, it's just so different to see. And then you add in a couple signings to bolster areas of need. You know, fullback was a big one all year. You shore that area up with the field and it's helped immensely. You've seen already the impact Larray and Atacugby have had in, in their short, short time with the Whitecaps. Now you add a bit of depth to spell Ryan Gold's legs in games, and that offers a bit of something different up front in Hoylet. Uh, I think that helps, and it, it's it's been a big surprise to see. And now it's, it just feels like this Whitecaps team's really put together a team that can push for, uh, you know, to push to make a run in the playoffs. They're, you know, pushed up the top four. Now there's top two. Even first in the West is all within reach now if they they keep up what they're they're doing. And it's a big surprise and it's not something we expected to see years ago but it shows the process they've had to get to this point bringing in the right guys and now continually adding the right support pieces to their their core and uh it's just impressive to see with every move they make that what they've kind of built up now i think they're also starting to see the opportunity that's in front of them they're seeing how the group to this point has gotten themselves within the conversation of you know brian white and ryan galder are banging in the goals and playing well and they're in the conversation of not only making the playoffs, but there's been people talking about them as sneaky MLS Cup contenders as well. I mean, there's also, you know, Miami who looks somewhat unbeatable when they have their, their full complement of players, but they're even in, in, in tough to get into the playoffs. If they do, I think they probably win it, unfortunately. But when you look at the, the Whitecaps and the approach, they're cashing in on what what seems like a good opportunity and in the past uh, like as i know you mentioned on your your third sub podcast alex they would just wait things out they would 
let a player go and then maybe wait a year to see if they can replace them with the, the perfect guy. And for so often there was not a sporting director and a manager as well. So it would be like, you know, Mark DeSantos flying over to do the scouting and then flying back to do the coaching. Um, and it just seems like it, it's working now with, with Axel Schuster at the, the top of the club. Of course, he has a lot of responsibilities and probably too many for his role to focus completely on the footballing side. And Sartini is able to focus on the football and they've been able to sort of see this opportunity that's in front of them and improve the team to take their best shot at that opportunity. And from Oz Sweeney at Oz Sweeney 4, how do we expedite Ryan Gauld's Canadian citizenship? <laughs> he was tremendous in that game, wasn't he? And he's been tremendous for the last several months. And finally, finally, there are some quiet rumblings that he should get some MVP consideration. I don't think he's going to win it. I don't think he's finally. probably going to get even like top three or top five votes, to I be don't honest. Think, I don't think he should win it. Um, well, no, he probably shouldn't. But at the very least, should get recognition in the MVP conversation, because when you look at players who are literally valuable to their teams, you take Ryan Gold out of the team. Like, think about the San Jose game at home in August when he didn't start the first half, came on in the second half, and instantly transformed their attacking prowess. Like, that just kind of goes to show you the importance he has in that team. But it's not just that. The way he tracks back, and even if he loses possession, hustles back to win it. And especially when you're watching guys like Lorenzo Insigne and Federico Bernadeschi just throw their arms up and just stop running, and they get frustrated and don't track back and whatnot. It, it really does speak to... First of all, how good of a player he is, but also how responsible of a player he is. Um, and so that's why he does deserve MVV consideration. The fact he's in a small market that's largely been an afterthought, it's in a not major Canadian market on top of that, that means he's not going to get it. But I think we've seen with Cincinnati that if a small market does do well, if there is something to like there, then your top players are going to get that recognition, just like Luciano Acosta is getting now. So maybe next year, if the Whitecaps can make a good run this year, they continue it into next year. Galt continues to show off his stuff, just like Hany Mukhtar has been able to do this year compared to last year. You're probably going to see him in that conversation. But listen, when it comes to, to his Canadian eligibility, yeah, I, I'm sure people are going to be waiting very, very anxiously for the next couple of years to see if he's going to get that citizenship, if he's going to switch to Canada and uh, make that a reality. Because, my God, he is a fantastic player i think another sort of positive uh, about ryan gold is the the fact that he's able to continue to deliver despite sort of improved focus on him so far like halfway through the season there were starting to be more discussions of is this one of the best players in mls is this a player that can lead the white caps to, to greater heights and those conversations were at least going on within white cap supporters and white caps media and canadian media and now you see that he's starting to get a little bit more um attraction and attention across the league and i mean there's even been sort of rumblings on twitter it seems about scotland potentially being in the cards again in terms of a call-up which of course would would not help his, his idea of canadian citizenship will happen anyway um yeah it doesn't seem like it's going to happen under the the current scottish coaching staff either uh in the way that they rate mls but It'll be interesting to see how he continues to strive or take on um, the added attention. Because when you get that added attention, like a you know feature story on MLSsoccer.com, um, and you're you're getting attention from basically league-wide media, you're in the MVP conversations, 
you're one of the top players in MLS and it's gaining attention now, you're going to have that added attention on the pitch as well. You're going to have that those more questions at away games. You're going to have more questions at home matches as well. And he's done well to this point, but that's a very small media core in Vancouver that he faces week in, week out. Um, and on the road, Vancouver's not a sexy team um, because they're from Vancouver. Now they're playing well. They have Ryan Gold. They have a talismanic player. And that added attention is going to be something new for him. And it'll be interesting to see how he does with that because he could very well shrink and that completely kills the Whitecaps. I think he'll be fine because he's been labeled the Scottish Messi since he was a kid. And he's kind of done okay with it. So, you know, and listen, the Scottish media can really whip themselves up into a frenzy. So he has some experience with that. He hasn't lived at home for a while. I'm talking Scotland, that is. So... I don't think it'll be that much of an issue for him, to be honest. And, and listen, the, the fact that he continues to raise his game, game by game, as the pressure continues to ramp up, that also kind of goes to show you it's not facing him at all, this extra attention. He's also played one of the top clubs in Portugal and got to learn a lot there. I mean, they spoke about it in the future, just what playing at Sporting uh, Club Portugal was, uh, was like for him. And I mean, yeah, I, I think for, for Galda, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. I think for him to even have a shot at MVP, the Whitecaps will need to win the West and he'll have to just keep on the trajectory he has for him to have a chance. I think it's going to be Lucho Acosta, especially with since he just running away with the shield. Um, but I guess for Gold, you could argue if he finishes strong, maybe Acosta fades out a bit. Recency bias carries Gold, uh, especially with the perspective around the Whitecaps. But look, he, uh, he, he should, at least in my opinion, be on the, the a, a top five vote just because, look, he's top five in goals plus assist contributions, considering he, hasn't, he didn't get his first one till May. That's no small feat. He's scoring for fun right now, his assists. And you just you watch him play as well. Like it's the effort. Like for TFC, it wasn't so much the actual performance, like offensively. Yeah, he got a lot of key passes, probably should have had three assists and a goal. Uh, but just it was the work off the ball. He was willing the ball back in scenarios where he Vancouver would lose the ball and he would single-handedly run back, win it himself, and then go jump start the attack. And you're just not seeing that sort of contribution from offensive players uh like that. So from for me, Gall does absolutely have an MVP shout. And hey. If he can keep this up, I'm sure if uh, if a Canadian politician were to run on the platform, get Gold to the CanMNT, I'm sure they could swing a few extra votes uh, based on uh, you know the form that Gold is showing right now. He might have faced difficult media in Scotland and difficult media in Portugal, but has he faced the wrath of the MLS 360 post game team? That's that, a different. That's a different that he, level. That he hasn't yet. That's true. Yeah. That's a different level, and he'll get to that eventually. Uh, but the question from Hubert McKellar. Are you liking Vancouver's chances of winning MLS Cup? Also, do you think that they can match TFC's 2017 season record? As a TFC fan, I can see the Caps easily being the best football club in Canada for quite a while. With a better striker, they can be an MLS Cup favorite. Do not disrespect the XG King Brian White, let me tell you. Uh, but, but that does kind of lead nicely in, into a point I, I, I do want to make here in terms of their chances of winning MLS Cup. Because my dad who has been a massive Whitecaps fan dating back to their USL days he was asking me after the TFC game do you think that they could legitimately make a run to MLS Cup and I said look we're gonna find out a lot about them over this next little stretch because they're playing against Houston, RSL, Seattle, LAFC, St. Louis teams that are in that just mosh pit of teams from basically sixth all the way up to first in the west because even St. Louis can be caught potentially by Vancouver if they can win their games in hand. Um, 
that to me is going to be the massive test here because how many times have they really been outplayed in MLS this season? Like you could maybe say the Kansas City game where they lost 3-0. Um, St. Louis. The the St. Louis game. Well, even then, like Thomas Assal, unlucky that that happens. Maybe with Yohei Takaoka starting, they end up getting a result from that game. There were a couple of games early in the season where they were maybe potentially outplayed. But otherwise, they've played against Seattle well. They've played against LAFC well. they played against all of pretty much the good teams they have faced in the league very well. The, the key here is... Can they get the clinical finishing when they need? Brian White has scored four goals in his last six games. He's now starting to overachieve his expected goals, whereas he was underachieving prior to this. But it's a question as a team, can they actually get the lethal finishing they require? Because defensively, they're top five in expected goals against. Offensively, they're top five in the league in expected goals against. Expected goal difference is top three to five in the league. But it's one thing to create the chances. It's one thing for Ryan Gall to whip in the perfect cross or to send in the perfect through ball for Pedro Vite to shimmy through a couple of defenders and play in the perfect pass. But can they get the clinical finishing when they're playing against teams that can match their quality, produce similar levels of chances, and maybe get slightly better finishing? Like LAFC has a Dennis Buanga who can put those chances away with ease. Will Brian White be able to do that? with similar simplicity that's the major question to me i don't think so because there have been too many games this year where they have been the better team just haven't been able to get the finishing and that's cost them um but they can certainly make a run into let's say the final four in the in, in the playoffs but i will be reserving judgment somewhat in terms of can they actually get that clinical finishing once they get through this mini gauntlet of sorts, especially with Brian White now starting to regress towards what his XG actually has been. He's on 13 and a half expected goals. He scored 11 goals in league play. He's slowly catching up to his XG. Maybe he ends up proving me wrong and puts away those chances. We'll see. On your point of the, the final four, I've always been of the belief if you can make a semifinal, you can win the whole fucking thing. In any, oh, in, in, in any sport, if you've had things go your way to the semifinal, but, then but, you can win the whole but thing. But in those one-off games, can they get the chances that fall to them? Because yes, for the most part, they have outplayed a lot of teams this year. But then there have been games like San Jose or Kansas City or the last Seattle game where they do get outplayed or they do match them chance for chance. One side gets one transition, puts it in, a la San Jose. They get a bunch of chances, can't hit the back of the net to save their lives, and they lose one nil. Right, So it, it, it's that random vari variation that, to me, is the X factor here for them. I'll give it to you. I've, I've never seen a team, um, you know, not make it to the semifinals and win the whole thing. So I'll, I'll give it to you on that one in terms of uh, <laughs> making the semifinals. <laughs> you have the quality, that I was, mean. That was a very Neffian statement you made there. Well done. <laughs> He is on the Benning Bros. Just get in and anything can happen. <laughs> yeah, get into the semifinal. <laughs> Not into the round of 16. <laughs> hey, regardless, there's a reason why, you know, the, the adage goals wins games exists. It's true. It just kind of, you know, goes without saying. Um, but... Uh, Honestly, I, I'd argue it's not goals that worry me for this team. It's defending. I, I think that's, for me, it's been the bigger point, I think, throughout the year. Because, look, they're, you know, what, top two, top in XG. As we've seen, that stuff kind of corrects itself. 
we've really seen it with a few market correction games as a reason why the Whitecaps have five nils, five ones. They had that, you know, wasn't it like almost six, six one it was against Dynamo earlier yeah. in the year. Um, like they, they've had a few, you know, just drubbings. The offense, yeah, it's been inconsistent, but for the most part, they've had their goals. They've had their, um, those sorts of opportunities. Um, so I'd say for, for me, it's the defense just because it feels like, especially they've, it feels like in games where they've lost one nil, two nil, it's like a similar recipe. It's like RSL in the opening game of the year at San Jose lately, they'll concede a dumb goal and it's just, they'll spend yeah. the whole game trying to break down a low block. And that's where their offense struggles. That's where we see the, you know, they rack up the XG, but they don't get the finishes. I think when they score first and they allow the game to open up or they play a team like TFC this past weekend where they give up the first goal again off more sloppy defending, yeah. but then In TFC just too. decided that defending exactly defending transition moment. Thankfully for them, Toronto FC decided that defending was optional on the day and, you know, tracking back post runners and, you know, your blind spots and all that was just, you know, you, you, it's not something you need to fulfill as a requirements of as a professional footballer um, to borrow a term from Martin Nash. I, I think it's something where um, for, uh, for, for the white caps, they have to just defend better. Cause I think if they're going to be the scoring in the first goal in the playoff game, if they're not going to be chasing, they have a chance, but I think we've seen, especially there's so many top games. I could use example. Um, like again, the RSL is the one I think back of at home beginning of the year, of course, though, there's a few other home games as well, where if they concede first, it really just, it hurts their game plan, especially when it's a soft goal. Like, look, sometimes you concede first, uh, but if you're getting beat in the air easily, or if you're allowing, uh, you know, a goal you shouldn't uh, uh, allow. It's something that's hurt them. So for me, I'm looking at their defending. And even over the last few weeks, it's been a worry. TFC, the goal is an example. The, some of the goals they allowed against Portland as well in that game, that made it a way closer game than it should have. Um, yeah, they kept the clean sheet against Chicago, but ditto against New York. The next game, they allowed some some soft goals. They have to get that out of the game because I think they can outscore most of their problems. But apparently when they concede a first goal, that's been kind of the one thing they've struggled to outscore consistently this year. It was a shame from Michael Bradley's perspective and Toronto FC's perspective that a club legend has to play his tribute game uh, in, in many ways, his 300th appearance, and he had a like pregame ceremony and such, and then was trotted out at center back and looked completely incompetent in that position. Um, fine for the Whitecaps, but unfortunate for Bradley and TFC. Elsewhere, CF Montreal terminated Matt Komeljevic's contract for essentially violating his contract by playing in the QCSL and Amateur League, and then punching a player in said league and getting banned from it. Uh, under a fake name, too. Under a fake name. Until they corrected the QCSL website, and now he's in as Matt Komiljevic. The best part about that was that he was listed as, like, an intermediate-level player. I'm like, my guy, you are a fully-fledged <laughs> professional. You are, you probably... You make almost half is, a million dollars a year. Yeah, like, to, to, to play this sport that guys are just playing for fun, to pay to play in, like, come on, man. It reminded me a lot of uh, Jordy yeah. Reyna uh, during COVID with White Oh my God, when, yeah, he went, right. when he went to play in a pickup game and then got and like he suspended. Park, was it not? Yeah, yeah. And then got suspended for several months or That's something. That's right. Yeah, jeez. That's not the first. Oh yeah, that one. I mean, that one was funny too because it's like it was peak. Well, it was peak COVID too. So yeah, it's like it was, it was the health violation. It was just like <laughs> it's like go play pickup because it's like whatever you can go kick about i mean it's dumb but you can go kick about but it was like peak pandemic stay inside go use your home gym or whatever or go kick about on your own uh but no mil mil one is just like that might be one of the most like because again like 
he had a guaranteed contract for next year. He's making 500K a year or whatever it was, or around 400K a year. So you just threw away a million dollars pretty much of, you know, of guaranteed money um, because he decided to play pickup and get in a fight. I mean, like you kind of respect the passion, I, I suppose, but I mean, like yeah. just absolutely idiotic and it, it's going to torpedo your f- future chances at a team as well, because 100%. like what team's going to be, you know, want to want to sign you. But I guess, I mean, I've heard there's a, a Sunday league in Toronto that could use some more offense. So maybe if he wants to oh, continue his uh, his rec career, he, he, you know, maybe might might have a few guys ringing up the phone. But for, in a professional capacity, it, it remains to be seen if he'll even get an opportunity after this, just because it seems so boneheaded. On the bright side, Toronto Irish are going to be recruiting in the spring next year. So if Matko wants to come down and just help us spark a, uh, a comeback potentially and play for what is actually a, a decent team, because I know the team he played for was absolutely awful. Then they lose 5-1 in the game that he punched a guy in. No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't play in the game. He punched a guy in. He was. He was chilling on the sideline. That was the worst part. He played in three games, you wonder, and then he went to a game, chilled on the sidelines, and then punched the guy. You, you wonder if he didn't and spat punch on him the too, guy and spat on him. Forgot about that part. If he didn't get involved in that, would he have gotten away with it? Like that's my question here. Probably. Like, because he would have gotten fined. I think. If and you know what's him. actually funny too is there. There was a player in a Toronto seven-a-side league who I played with, he was a contracted MLS player when he played in the league and he was just running circles around guys. Now, this was in the off-season, so at least it wasn't in the middle of the campaign and he never fought or spat on anybody, so there's that. But it does happen more often than you think. Like, guys just get invited by their friends, like, all right, what's the harm? But it is written in their contract. You, you, You can't do this. And yet they still do it. But most of the time they don't get caught. Matt Komailevich was just stupid enough to get caught by doing something completely boneheaded. If he wants to come out to my Tuesday night co-ed six-a-side team, we lost 2-0 last night. We need some offensive threat. Um, I'm certainly not enough in terms of attacking threats. So he is you more than welcome. You didn't finish your chance either. So I had one chance, it, one chance, one off the post, small goals. Uh, but he's more than welcome to come Excuses. out. He, uh, we can even excuse him from the registration fee. Um, There's no punching, guys. Is, is, it, is it an or intermediate level league? Because that's exactly his level. Oh, unfortunately, it's advanced. But um, <laughs> well, he, he might not be good enough according to his profile. You mentioned the, the contract obligations, though. And I was a little bit surprised to to see such an in-depth feature on Ryan Gold um, surfing. Because I would have assumed that that's in his contract, that he's not allowed to surf different though because it's a different sport it's a pastime it's a recreation yeah but if you look if you look at a lot of professional contracts like you, you're not allowed to go skiing or skydiving and stuff like that imagine that was like the part skiing's of the contract far different that he he's like you have to let me surf i don't care how much of an injury risk it is you have to let me surf it's good for my mental health i need this you know well, I, I, honestly, if there is a surfing expert who listens to NFP, let us know. I mean, I just know from experience, skiing is a different beast because, I mean, you do it, Bennett. A lot of pressure on the on the knees, the <laughs> legs. Lawyer. I mean, we saw Manuel Neuer as well. <laughs> exactly. Right, right on cue, Manuel Neuer showed, like, it's a risky sport. I mean, from what I understand, surfing, especially if you're, you know, I mean, it didn't specify, is he body surfing? Like, is he just, you know, is he catching a wave or is he trying to go up and tackle 10 feet gargantuan waves? <laughs> Um, but hey, if there's a surfing it's expert out there, I mean, uh, and it, it, if it, it if if it is taxing on the knees, uh, then 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 let me know. But hey, maybe this is a good excuse for us to do an NFP surfing uh, oh, challenge or something of the sort. Oh, fuck it, let's go to the Olympics in Tahiti. 
Uh, but true. getting into games on Wednesday, and we are recording this on Wednesday, so we won't get into it too much. Inter Miami faced TFC, arrested Lionel Messi facing TFC. That should be a fun one to watch. Uh, ZF Montreal take on FC Cincinnati and the Houston Dynamo take on the Vancouver Whitecaps. Houston, of course, missing Karaskia as well. Yeah, huge, massive. So, th- And that's going to be one of those litmus tests for the Whitecaps too. And getting into our CPL recap, Cavalry picked up a 2-1 win over Vancouver FC. Forge took down Valor 3-2. Pacific outplayed York United, a 4-1 win in that one. And the HFX Wanderers played to a thrilling 3-2 victory over Atletico Ottawa. From Dan Clark, do you think HFX Wanderers' proposal from a permanent stadium has a chance of actually happening? The CFL tried to get a stadium in HRM and it fizzled out. I think this is a much more positive and plausible idea of a stadium because when you're looking at uh the atlantic schooners uh in the cfl you were looking at building a you know twenty thousand person stadium and and a a much bigger type thing for a cfl because the the barrier to entry is so much higher in the cfl than Mm -hmm. it is the cpl with this you're building practically a community center Uh, that's why you're putting an artificial turf as Mm -hmm. well um and there's going to be so much use that you're going to be able to get out of it the area has already been used for a soccer stadium, so people mm-hmm. are are getting used to that, even though it isn't there in the off season because it's a temporary venue. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that overall it would be a positive addition and a lot more plausible because you're not thinking of sprawling parking lots, you're not thinking of twenty thousand in the middle of downtown. No. Uh, it's a very fine size. It, yeah. it's, it's easy on the eye. It's, it's not it's not in yeah. your face. You know, it's, it, it really is the perfect venue. The Wanderers have become a fixture in the community as well. Clearly, they have one of the best atmospheres in the league. Having a permanent stadium in place there is only going to help that brand. It's only going to help the team. It's only going to bolster the legitimacy of the CPL too because then if you have HFX with their own stadium, permanent stadium, with sellouts and they're playing well, that only bolsters the league too. A roof too with the weather that's been in Halifax this year. Yeah, it's huge. It's on the U.S., the boon of the soccer-specific stadium, what it's done there in terms of the culture. And I guess like this this would be the first like permanent soccer-specific stadium built specifically for the CPL because I guess Starlight was already there before and then both Wanderers Ground and Willoughby are temporary. So that's also a big milestone, uh, you know, worth noting as well. Um, and yeah, I think they've just done a lot of the right things heading into this proposal because you can look at over five years um, you know, four seasons that they've consistently filled the grounds with fans, you know, consistently selling it out as well. So there's a demand for more capacity. Um, like you mentioned, the community aspect, the Wanderers are embedded everywhere in the community there. They're doing a lot of outreach. You add in as well, the women's side of it as well, that they've invested in the uh, women's team to start in League One. And, you know, it sounds like they have an eye of wanting to put it in professionally. Um, that's also as well showing the the impact of growing the game on that side that they'll they'll have like the Wanderers have done a lot right off the field it feels like in terms of just the engagement in the community and uh, having this permanent venue will only add to it and it feels like I'd be very surprised if it doesn't go through just based on all the factors that you and uh, you listed as well as uh, some of those ones. And I, I think another sort of positive with the potential stadium is, is it fits in line with a lot of venues that we see across the Maritimes whether that be you know, the Avenir Center in Moncton or the Scotiabank Center in Halifax, like it, it fits sort of that level um, in terms of what we've seen from arenas uh, in the Maritimes. And I think it, it's the perfect fit. And, and I would employ this CFL to explore playing some games there as well, because 
you're not necessarily getting massive crowds, even if you built a 20, 30,000 person stadium. Might be different in the Maritimes though. Massive crowds? 20,000 plus. I think they could get that regularly for sure. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not so confident on it. Like they, they definitely do well in sort of like the, the kickoff Atlantic type games and stuff that they play at the, the local universities. But I don't know. I'm just, I think that it might be worthwhile to balance out the league um, in the CFL to put a team there and create a unique atmosphere there as, as well. Um, the operating costs on, on CFL teams are not exponential. Um, and so I, I think it, it could be intriguing, but it would be the smallest stadium in the league by far. Um, but a question from On The Rise at On The Rise AFC. What clubs do you think might be interested in Daniel Nimick and what league would you want to see him in most? I would say MLS to start with because for the most part, defenders have made the transition to MLS pretty seamlessly, namely Joel Waterman, of course. And yes, you have the likes of Diadine Abzi who've gone to Europe and have done all right, but it did take Abzi a while to settle into league. Uh, now he's slowly getting accustomed to the Segunda División now. And for center backs, it is a lot different. And age is on Nimic's side too. He's 22, 23. He can play in MLS for a couple of years and still catch the eye of a bigger club in Europe when the time comes. And he has had one really good season in the CPL that is worth noting. He could very easily keep growing from here and, and become a solid squad player, if not a rotational starter, a la Lucas McNaughton, where he worked his way from rotational player to eventually fully-fledged starter. So for me, that would be where I'd want to see him go. In terms of the kind of team to see him go, a, a club like a Nashville would make sense. I mean, could you imagine an all-CPL partnership if Walker Zimmerman ends up leaving one day? That'd be kind of cool to see. Um, but basically a team that can kind of protect him because even though he does have the all-around attributes, he's clearly lethal in the air as well. You wonder what the potential step up in individual quality could do to his overall confidence, whether tactically he'd be able to adjust, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think uh, MLS, like that, like a gateway move would make sense because obviously he has the English passport, given that, you know, he, he grew up there. So it could make sense to want to go into England as well, given how complicated it can sometimes be for foreign players to hop in that he has that advantage. Um, but, you know, maybe it could make sense for him to go in MLS and then push to like a League One championship after a few years, um, something like that. Uh, but yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see. I'm curious to see as well if he makes that jump up because it's worth noting how like kind of unprecedented his his jump is in the sense that he's he was playing college last year. Like the fact that he's gone from playing in the college NCAA system where it's just such a it's it's maybe not the level that surprised me so much because again we've seen several college players make that jump up no war no issue. For me, it's just how like durable he's been he's only missed one game and that was just because patrice geyser wanted to rest me he's played every other minute of this season so far for someone who goes from college where you're playing two three games a weekend but then you have you're only playing three month seasons to go to a pro season be playing every game and his level hasn't really dipped all year long that's going to be impressive so i think that might also help him make the jump up to another level because he's already had that baseline of fitness of consistency that uh can help him so i think he could definitely make a jump up to like an MLS, find his feet, maybe takes a couple of seasons. And then from there, the fact that he has that English passport could work on his side if he pushes uh, into a, into a move back into the country where he, uh, he grew up. Getting into our Canucks abroad roundup and mailbag, Alfonso Davies went 90 minutes for Bayern Munich in a 2-2 draw with Bayer Leverkusen on Friday. 
He started their Champions League opener against Man United on Wednesday as well. Jonathan David converted a penalty in Lille's 2-0 win over Olympia in Europa Conference League action on Wednesday morning. Liam Miller got off to a flying start with Preston North End in the championship with a goal in his debut on Saturday. He also started against Birmingham City on Tuesday. Luca Coliosho continues to get starts for Burnley amidst loads of interest from multiple federations. He had 76 minutes against Nottingham Forest on Monday. Alistair Johnston went 90 minutes for Celtic in a 2-0 loss to Feyenoord in their Champions League opener. He did have a hockey assist in their league win over Dundee United. Stefan Estacchio started for Porto in their win over Shakhtar Donetsk in the Champions League. Kamal Miller and Inter Miami's unbeaten streak came to an end in a 5-2 loss to Atlanta with Miller scoring an own goal. Even though a positive start from Miami in that one, they were missing some of their big stars. As for the women, Vanessa Gilles scored for Lyon in a 4-0 win over Le Havre. Julia Grosso was on the score sheet for Juventus and Jordan Heidema signed a new deal with OL Reign through 2024. From On The Rise FC at On The Rise FC, what is your Ken MNT left wing chart, especially if we went 4-3-3? For me, it's Davies, Miller, Nelson, Schaffelberg. I think Schaffelberg probably above Nelson in my mind. I mean, in terms of Nelson, I'd see him a bit more centrally. I mean, obviously, he's kind of been playing a bit all over, but he's kind of pushed into that number 10 late box arriver uh, kind of role and I think especially given Canada's midfield depth I could almost push him into that kind of position but he is also familiar on on the wing because I'd say it yeah it's it's tight it's really tight right now between because also you have to put Corbianu of uh, of course as well into that discussion you know given he's two-footed you can kind of slot him in either wing um, but uh, yeah I mean I also would push Davies down to, to left back in a 4-3-3 I think personally, again, allows you to replicate what he's been doing at club and just kind of get that consistency there. So from there, but with Davies at, at left back, it's kind of between uh, Miller, Corbianu, Schaffelberg, uh, just because I'd see Nelson kind of in that 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 number eight, number 10 role. Um, and then right now, based on what we've seen, it's really, it's very close between Miller and, and Corbianu. Um, you, you could argue, argue, given that Miller, you know, the he's on the top team in the championship right now, great start, but also you want to see him build on that. Corbiana had the good start to the year with Grasshoppers, cooled down slightly. And then, of course, there's Schaffelberg, who harshly feels like he's, you know, maybe he, he's also very much in that mix, especially once he finds a bit of form again, because he's, he's quieted it down a bit as well with Nashville. So uh, that, that's probably, yeah, that's probably how I'd see it, of course. It shows why someone like you know, Luca Coliosho could be so valuable, but as he continues to rack up minutes with the uh, with Burnley, uh, it seems likely that a US or a, a Italy or, or even a Nigeria might come calling before. But hey, if if, if possible, it shows that you know the wing depth. Could, someone like Coliosho could very well slot in if 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 he were to accept the call, which we know is uh, no easy feat at this stage. And from ONW at the underscore Owen underscore W. How have our Euro-based players been performing? Costa, Justin Smith, Simon Coline, and any others that may have impressed. Justin Smith had a chance to go to CF Montreal, but declined it to stay in Europe. Yeah, and he's now in the third tier in France, getting fairly regular starts at least. But at the age of 20, he's got to start aiming a bit higher here. I know he went on loan to Ligue 2 last year, but barely got on the pitch. But that's the level, at the very least, he should be aiming to get here with regularity, especially as he gets older. He is a defender slash number six, so it's maybe not imperative, but the longer you stay inactive or not playing at as high of a level as you can, then the more your development gets stunted. Um, Jesse Costa, He's splitting starts and sub-appearances with Wolfsburg's U19s. He's actually gotten off to a pretty good start this year. A couple goals and an assist in the first 
it's five or six games he's played in, somewhere around there. Uh, Simon Coline suspended for the last match, so he hasn't played for DeGraff Shop since before the international break. Um, so it's not really a whole lot happening there. But one name that I think we will continue to track for the next little while, that's going to be Luke Defugerol. Um, He started in a cup match for Fulham's U21s against Leighton Orient, who play in League One. So a pretty solid test for him. And honestly, looked really, really good in that game. Um, just everything we saw from him in the preseason with the first team against legitimate Premier League opponents like Chelsea and Brentford, etc. Yes, it wasn't their full complement of players, but still, you're going up against Premier League first teams as an 18-year-old centre-back. And to not look out of place in those preseason games says a lot. Then you go into a competitive game against a third-tier club in England in a cup match. And again, you don't look out of place. In fact, you actually stand out really well is quite encouraging um so smooth on the ball doesn't get phased at all really by pressure um he's incisive with his decisions especially in those situations um he knows when to carry and how to eliminate the high press with his turns and carries the passing angles are perfect he never has a poorly weighed pass or anything of the sort um and at 18 there's so much potential there and that's why he got the opportunities in preseason with the first team in the first place. So if he continues on this trajectory, it could be a case where he ends up getting some loans in League One or the championship by next season, especially the way that he's going. Because having seen a few of his games in the under-21 level, I feel like he could end up you really benefiting from the challenge of playing in a professional environment week in, week out, as opposed to the developmental league system. And from Fabian Stifler, less than a month away from the friendly versus Japan, any roster predictions, notable inclusions or omissions? I mean, going to be a good question because I think there's a few positions of intrigue as after this summer. Um, I mean, first off in goal, what do we see? Um, cause it feels like someone like Jonathan Sirwas continuing to push his way into his discussion, but then also Max Crepeau is back from injury. So there could be some tough discussion to be had surrounding that as well as, you know, his Milan Borian return. He had a bright start to, you know, his, his Slovan Bratislava career, but he's, you know, he kind of had a bit rough go of things in Champions League qualifiers. Um, so it could make sense to to give a look uh, of a crew of St. Clair, Siron Crepeau, for example, um, in goal. At center back, there's also the discussion of, you know, surely someone like Lucas McNaughton has pushed his way in. Uh, you know, Joel Waterman as well, given he's been playing in the middle of a back three, especially because Steven Vittoria, uh, he could be, you know, uh, omitted from this one because he struggled for minutes with with the Chavez as well and has struggled with consistency um, there. Otherwise, I'd probably say the only other movement would be in midfield. Um, I think Ali Ahmed would probably get a call. Matthew Schwanier, of course, deserving of a call. So those two could... Uh, could slot their way in and then uh, up front. Uh, I mean, I guess just we've seen Corbianu and Miller, the form they've had at their clubs, they could, uh, they could earn a look in. So those would kind of be the ones to, to keep an eye on at this moment, especially there's been some interesting movement in MLS and uh, would be uh, intrigued to see which of those crew gets included in midfield and at the back. And that's all we've got for episode 140 of the Northern football podcast. I've been Ben Steiner. They've been Peter Galindo and Alex Ogay-Ruzik. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll be back next week for episode 141 of NFBs.